the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The John Steigerwald Show, sponsored by Service Master of Greater Pittsburgh. Demand the yellow van. Portions of today's program may be pre recorded. Emily Kahn's is an idiot. Not to be critical, uh, but uh, Emily is also the grand jury four person down in Atlanta in the investigation of Donald Trump and uh, him trying to affect the outcome of the 2020 election. Now, this is another one of those sound bites I'm about to play that we're, the, the radio just doesn't do it justice because you really have to see this person to really appreciate how, I guess, scary is the word it is that uh, someone's fate, forget the fate of the president of the United States or the fate of the country, uh, could be put in the hands of someone like this. She looks like she's a senior in high school, maybe a junior. And listen to what she said on CNN last night. Personally, want to hear from the former president. I wanted to hear from the former president, but honestly, I kind of wanted to subpoena the former president because I got to swear everybody in. And so I thought it'd be really cool to get 60 seconds with President Trump of me looking at him and being like, do you solemnly swear? And me getting to swear him in? I just, I kind of just thought that would be an awesome moment. That would be awesome. Just, what? Uh, what? Who are these people that they find that have the maturity level of someone who's about 12? I don't know how old she is. She looks young. Anyway, that's her. Her mug's been all over the internet, internet because she's been out there doing interviews. And I'm no lawyer, but I have a feeling that this is not a good thing for the prosecution if it does go to trial. You would think that whoever is charged in the case would have a pretty easy time of getting the whole thing thrown out. After looking at and listening to this idiot, she has said that the jury recommended uh, election interference charges against several people. She didn't name any of them. Lots of legal experts out there are saying that this could be a big problem for the prosecution because she's out there talking about it. And if Emily was a, a elected four person, what does that say about the other members of this jury? I mean, I, I think that's how they do it. <laughs> They said, yeah, she looks like the best of us. Let's make her the boss. And she's an idiot. Did I make that pretty clear, that I think she's an idiot? When we come back, uh, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court and Section 203. There are two cases there in the last couple of days at the Supreme Court that could do a lot of damage to Google and Twitter. And in our second half hour, it looks like the verdict is in on masks and COVID, and it looks like they were useless. We'll talk to a guy who said so a long, long time ago. Stick around. Eric was way behind on his taxes. I owed a lot of money to the IRS, almost $15,000. I tried to make payments. The IRS wasn't satisfied with Eric's efforts, so they came after him full force. They're coming to put a lien and a hold on all my income, my home, my car. I was just overwhelmed at what to do. Then Eric called Optima Tax Relief. When Optima Tax got involved, the calls would stop, the threats would stop. It was easy like... uh. One, two, three. Optima Tax Relief is A-plus rated by the Better Business Bureau, and their team of expert tax professionals took care of Eric's problem. I owe 15000 and now my debt is clean. I don't owe anything. Take Eric's advice. If you have a tax problem, you need to call Optima Tax now. Call Optima Tax Relief for a free consultation. Call 800-354-2840. 800-354-2840. Optima Tax Relief. Some restrictions apply. For complete details, please visit OptimaTaxRelief.com. Dennis Prager here. Sue and I mean it. Dogs are part of our family. We love Otto and Snoopy so much, there's nothing quite like their loyal companionship. So we provide them with rough greens. In fact, I just talked to my wife about it because we want them to be healthy and we want them to be with us as long as possible. That's true. I know Sebastian Gorka feels the same way. The Pragers and I couldn't agree more. Our pups, Killian and Leia, rely on us to provide what's best for them, a naturopathic 
Classic Dr. Dennis Black has packed rough greens full of vitamins, minerals, digestive enzymes, omega oils, and more that supplement their food in a way that has shown us great results. Trying out rough greens is an easy yes, recommended by me, Dr. G. Naturopathic Dr. Dennis Black here, and I'm so proud that the Pragers and Sebastian Gorka have entrusted their dog's health to rough greens. I'm so confident that rough greens can help your dog. I'm offering you a free Jumpstart trial bag. Just cover the shipping. Yes, your dog's food is dead food, but you can bring it back to life with Rough Greens. Go to RUFFGreens.com. Did you know that the average price of a used car is up over 40% from just a year ago? The cost of living has gone up and the cost for auto repairs is rising as well. The car you have needs to last you longer than ever. So if your vehicle has less than 150,000 miles with an auto warranty about to expire or with no warranty coverage at all, you need to call CarShield at 800-523-8667. We've just announced a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle service plan to help save thousands of dollars on out-of-pocket expenses for future auto repairs. While the cost for new and used cars continue to go up, CarShield offers protection plans at an all-time low. Drivers who activate their plan today will also receive 24-7 coast-to-coast roadside assistance, courtesy towing and emergency tire, battery, and key lockout service. Call 800-523-8667 today to save 20% on your plan. That's 800-523-8667. Keep your car protected. Call 800-523-8667. Again, 800-523-8667. My son Finn was born with congenital heart disease. He ended up spending about the first eight months of his life in the hospital. During that time, he endured 10 surgeries, including an open-heart surgery. Starlight Children's Foundation has played an important role in my family's life. For five weeks when he was a baby, Finn lived in a Starlight Hero wagon. You could not understand the pure joy of having him go from a hospital bed into his favorite red wagon. Starlight doesn't just give items that hospitalized kids can use to keep themselves happy, but also memories, moments, and experiences which are so needed in times like these. They allow sick kids to just be kids for a little while. The support that Starlight provides to families like mine is an integral part to creating happiness at a time when there's very little to be found. Learn more about how Starlight Children's Foundation brightens the lives of sick kids by visiting starlight.org today. The John Steigerwall Show, AM 1250, The Answer. Well, some big changes um, could be coming to some of your favorite social media platforms, I guess depending on what the Supreme Court says about Section 230, and they've been dealing with that for the last couple of days. Zach Smith is a legal fellow and manager of the Supreme Court Appellate Advocacy Program at the Heritage Foundation. He joins us now. Zach, thanks for coming back on the show. Always good to have you. Thanks. Of course. Always good to be here. So what is Section 230? Maybe we should start with that for people who don't know yet. Maybe they've heard it tossed around but not really sure what it is. Sure. So Section 230, it's a federal law. It was passed in the late 90s. And basically, it's been said that it's the building blocks for the modern Internet because it provides immunity from any potential liability for tech companies that are simply republishing third-party content from others. And so the idea was, at the time it was passed, that if someone posted something to a chat room or a message board, you didn't necessarily want the person hosting the chat room or the message board uh, to be liable uh, for that content that they were simply providing a space to be posted for. Now, you can imagine, so many years later, Section 230 has become very controversial, especially because many of the tech companies today are taking actions that look more like uh, that of traditional publishers. They're promoting certain content, demoting certain content, placing misinformation flags on content. And so Section 230 has been on the top of a lot of people's minds, and whether what made sense in the late 90s uh, continues to make sense today. So how is what you described different from, um, say, me writing a letter to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette editorial page, if they still have one of those, and, uh, and I say that I have, um, I have proof that Zach Smith is a serial killer, uh, and you better look out for him, and they publish, that, they publish my letter. Are they protected yeah. from, from uh, and how is that different from 230? Well, that actually wouldn't be the worst thing that's ever been said about me, John. So that's, uh, that's, <laughs> well, that's okay. Uh, but look, you know, no. So the newspaper publisher uh, in the print format would not enjoy 
the same uh, limitations on liability that many of these tech companies enjoy. Now, obviously, they could potentially, uh, the newspaper could potentially be subject to certain uh, tort liability. You know, they could be sued for defamation, but there's, you know, that's controversial today, too, because it's a very high bar for individuals to recover, uh, particularly if they're public figures. Uh, for them to recover in defamation actions. Uh, but no, Section 230 uh, applies specifically to content provided on the Internet. And so I think the point you're getting at, John, is one that's well taken, is many people are looking at this. They're looking at the vast power these tech companies wield. They're looking at the vast profits uh, these tech companies are reaping in today, uh, You know, even in the face of economic downturn, and are starting to reevaluate whether this you know, substantial benefit in terms of this limitation on liability that Section 230 provides, again, uh, makes sense today, particularly when it's a benefit only given to these tech companies. And so what are conservatives hoping will happen? What are they hoping to get from the court in these two cases? Well, I think we have to take a step back, actually, John, because this has been an interesting debate. Obviously, you know, the federal courts have interpreted Section 230 very expansively. And so I think there is uh, interest from many on the right, although it's not uniform, uh, for the Supreme Court to interpret Section 230 much more narrowly than it has been in the past. But part of the debate, too, is, you know, if we think Section 230 is too broad uh, today, whether for confers too great a benefit on these tech companies, is that really something the court should be addressing, or is it something that Congress needs to address? And so we've seen some debates on Section 230 taking place in Congress. I suspect we'll continue uh, to see those types of debates playing out. But, you know, what's really interesting about these two cases currently in front of the court, the Google case and the Twitter case, is the court may not even reach the Section 230 issue. You know, technically, both of these lawsuits involve uh, claims being made under the Anti-Terrorism Act. Essentially, uh, family members of individuals killed in two separate terrorist attacks, one in Turkey, one in Paris, have sued uh, Twitter and Google and other uh, tech entities, uh, claiming that these entities should be liable for essentially providing aid to these terrorist organizations because they either allowed them to use their platforms or they recommended, uh, in the case of YouTube and Google, certain uh, terrorist-affiliated videos. And so Google is urging the court to simply decide the case on these Anti-Terrorism Act grounds, you know, interpret the scope of the Anti-Terrorism Act, and if they find that Google and Twitter uh, are not liable under that act, then Google is saying to the court, look, you don't even need to reach this Section 230 issue. And we heard that issue come up uh, in oral arguments in the Google case. And so there is the possibility uh, that the court may essentially sidestep this very uh, hot topic right now and decide these cases on entirely separate grounds. So if that happens, is are we back to square one when it comes to t- Section 230 and the whole question of um, the power that, uh, Twitter and YouTube and Google have to censor the people they want to censor. So I think there's a there's another set of cases that the court is currently being asked to hear that could uh, be very interesting and could address essentially these same underlying issues, the power of tech companies. It wouldn't necessarily be Section 230 related, uh, but Texas and Florida both passed laws, state laws, essentially limiting when tech companies can deplatform someone, when they can censor or remove certain information. And the federal court, hearing the appeal from Texas, they upheld Texas's law. The court, federal court hearing the appeal from Florida's law, the challenge to Florida's law, they struck down most of Florida's law. And so both of those cases are currently pending before the court. The justices are being asked to consider them. They have not agreed to yet. But the court several weeks ago did ask for the views of the Biden administration. And whenever the court does that, that typically means uh, at least several of the justices are very interested in the case. And typically those cases have a much greater chance of being uh reviewed by the justices. It's no guarantee, uh, but I think those are two cases that are worth watching, and that may become particularly interesting depending on what the court does in these Google and Twitter cases that it just heard. I don't know who it was yesterday. I forget which justice it was, but uh, one of them said, that we're not exactly Internet experts over here. So. <laughs> well, that Is- does not shock me, especially in light of some of the uh, tech revelations coming out from the court leaker investigation. Right, right. Uh, 
but look, I think that highlights the point we were we were just talking about, John. You know, who do we want deciding these very important, very consequential, very policy laden decisions that are going to, you know, have have the potential to substantially reshape uh, important aspects of our society? Do we want nine unelected, unaccountable justices making these decisions? Or do we want the people's representatives in Congress making these decisions? And so while it's certainly important for the justices to correctly interpret the scope of Section 230 as it's currently written, uh, I think this is part of a larger conversation uh, that we as a society that, you know, Congress needs to engage in as well over whether, again, what made sense in the late 90s in terms of the limitations on liability conferred by Section 230, uh, whether that continues to make sense today in 2023 Uh, given the vast power and influence that many of these tech companies are are wielding. We're talking to Zach Smith. He's a legal fellow and manager of the Supreme Court Appellate Advocacy Advocacy Program at the uh, Heritage Foundation. So um, I'm a little confused here. when You're talking about whether it should be Congress or the Supreme Court, and that's why we have you on, because you're an expert on this stuff. Um, Does it not come down to a, a, a First Amendment issue and a an interpretation of the first amendment and why isn't that why isn't the supreme court required when it comes down if it if you know if the bottom line uh, becomes is this is uh does the the, the uh, first amendment protect these platforms to, from uh, having anybody tell them what they can do yeah so the first amendment issue is much more squarely teed up in the texas and florida cases uh, you know, in these cases before the court now, the issue is essentially it's not quite tort like liability, but something like it. Uh, you know, whether these families can recover, you know, based on the alleged aid that Twitter and Google gave to these terrorist organizations. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Look, the First Amendment issues are pervasive in these types of cases. You know, do the tech companies themselves have a First Amendment right to choose what to platform, when to platform, where to platform it? Or, you know, is there state action involved? You know, are they working at the behest of either the state or federal governments uh, to take certain steps? You know, there can't be a First Amendment violation unless the government is forcing uh, forcing someone to do something or prohibiting someone to do something. That's why we heard in the congressional hearings uh, several weeks ago so much back and forth and focus on kind of the interplay between Twitter and the federal government, you know, whether Twitter was working at the behest of the federal government, because depending on how those factual iterations develop, you know, that could potentially give rise to a First Amendment claim. Uh, But again, the key here is state action, deciding whether and when that exists. And I, I think that's something we're going to continue to see play out in the lower federal courts. We'll see it litigated. And again, in that Texas and Florida cases, uh, I think the First Amendment issues will be much more prominently featured. Ken, what happens with this? Uh, the, the hearings that are, were going on yesterday and today, can what comes out of that affect Texas and Florida's laws? Well, it could potentially, and you know, some who are watching the court say it could tee up a very interesting conflict. You know, if the justices essentially scale back the scope of Section 230, which means these tech companies could face greater uh, potential liability for content they allow to be uh, posted. And if the court upholds either Texas or Florida's law, which prohibits these companies from removing certain content, you know, that could create somewhat of a conflict. You know, companies are prohibited from removing content at the same time they're facing increased uh, liability risk. And so, again, these are very important policy uh, considerations uh, that are being teed up. Uh, Again, the justices have not agreed to review the Texas and Florida cases. And so all of that to say, look, there's still a lot of moving pieces to this. There's still a lot of unknowns. But in the immediate future, what the justices do with the Twitter and Google cases will be very interesting. And it will be specifically interesting to see whether they address the merits of the Section 230 question or whether they take the invitation presented by Google to essentially sidestep that hot-button issue and decide these cases on separate grounds. Well, I, I, I seem to have noticed that the Internet is kind of a big deal these days. Uh, <laughs> you th- this, is, this is pretty big, isn't it? What, what happens with yeah. this ultimately, whether it's, you know, with, with the fine points notwithstanding, just the, the bottom line here, it's, it's a pretty big deal, isn't it? 
it is a big deal. But again, regardless of what the court does, you know, Section 230 is a statute. Congress can change it uh, at any time, you know, subject to constitutional limitations. And so I suspect regardless of what the court does, you're going to see uh, either the losing party or the winning party, if they're not completely happy with the ruling, going to Congress, asking for changes. And so, again, I think we're uh, we're not at the end of this story. We're just at the beginning. We're talking to uh, Zach Smith, legal fellow at the uh, Heritage Foundation. Uh, a couple other quick things here before you go. Um, I also understand that student loan forgiveness is an issue with the court uh, during this session. What's yep. likely to come out of that? Well, again, that's an open question. I think it's pretty clear to me the Biden administration violated <laughs> the, the relevant statutory provisions, uh, as they have so many times in the past. Uh, but there are two student loan cases the court is going to hear, one on behalf of several states, one on behalf of private plaintiffs. And the issue uh, in both of these cases is whether these parties have standing, whether they're the appropriate legal entities to bring these claims before the court. And I think, you know, based on what I've seen, based on others I've talked to, the states have a much more uh, airtight case on the standing issue. I think it's more likely the justices get to the merits of the case in the, the case involving the states versus the Biden administration. The case with the private plaintiffs, it raises many of the same issues. I suspected more of that argument will be focused on the standing issues, whether these private individuals have in fact uh, been harmed by the Biden administration's actions. After all, uh, they're getting their student loan debts forgiven. Uh, and so that, that, I think that will be, uh, how those arguments will play out. You'll see the, uh, the one focused more on the procedural standing issues and the other focused on the merits of uh, the Biden administration's loan forgiveness program. Uh, but again, very important, very consequential, uh, pair of cases to watch. What, what are the, um, the, the private people looking for? Are they, are they, do they, are they saying that they deserve to have their loans forgiven or is somebody saying that the, the Joe Biden doesn't have the power to just forgive somebody else's loan? Well, they're essentially saying Joe Biden doesn't have the power to forgive the loan, which is why it's counterintuitive in some respect, right? Because people look at the case, their knee jerk is, well, you're getting your loans forgiven. But in fact, the injury that those private plaintiffs are claiming is that they weren't afforded the ability to to participate in what should have been a notice and comment rulemaking process. You know, typically the way uh, a new rule or regulation should come out is through what's known as the notice and comment process. The agency has to give notice, individuals or groups are able to comment, there's typically a back and forth, and then a final rule is promulgated. That is not what the Biden administration did here. They essentially unilaterally noticed these changes, you know, basically said we're forgiving the student loan debt. Uh, and so there's two claims. You know, there's the claim that one, the Biden administration uh, doesn't substantively have the power to unilaterally forgive the student loan debt. And then there's the claim that, you know, even if you disagree, uh, you know, on that point, they didn't follow the proper procedure in, you know, taking this action. And so, you know, again, you have the procedural and the substantive issues teed up, and there'll be a very uh, interesting set of arguments before the court. Again, bottom line, and I just have about 30 seconds left here, um, what, what, what kind of a resolution might there be or not be with the student loan program But when they're done here? Well, Are they still going to be up in the air? Well, I'm hopeful that the justices will strike it down. Again, I think they're, they're likely to reach the merits in terms of the state's case. And I think if they reach the merits in these cases, they'll find that the Biden administration uh, exceeded its authority in taking this action. At least that's what I hope they do. Yeah, it just seems like kind of an un-American thing to me to, for the government to come to me and say, hey, uh, Zach Smith's uh, son uh, wants to go to college. We want you to pay for it, and uh, we're going to make you. <laughs> well, and don't forget, John, Congress considered uh, doing this several times and basically said, no, we're not going to do it. And then the Biden administration stepped in and said, well, we'll do it anyway, yeah. <laughs> which is just, you know. <laughs> for political reasons, obviously. Levels. Yeah. Hey, right. hey, Zach, I appreciate you coming on. You did it on short notice and uh, very valuable stuff for what's going on there. Thank you. Of course. Always happy to do it. Thanks Thank you very much. Out. That's Zach Smith. He is a legal fellow and manager of the Supreme Court Appellate Advocacy Program at the Heritage Foundation. We'll be right back. With SRN News, I'm John Scott. A third Republican has entered the race for the GOP presidential nomination. Vivek Ramaswamy is a biotech entrepreneur, investor, and author of Woke Incorporated. 
In announcing his candidacy in a newly released video, Ramaswamy declared, we're in the middle of a national identity crisis. Faith, patriotism, and hard work have disappeared, only to be replaced by new secular religions like COVIDism, climatism, and gender ideology. Ramaswamy, the third GOP presidential candidate, along with Nikki Haley and former President Donald Trump. Russian President Putin has hosted China's senior foreign policy official at the Kremlin. Those meetings showed the strengthening of Russia's relationship with China. On Wall Street, the Dow is down 92 points, but the Nasdaq is up 21. This is SRN News. From the creators of I Can Only Imagine comes Jesus Revolution. If you look a little deeper, if you look with love, you'll see an entire generation searching for all the right things, just in all the wrong places. Based on a true revolution. You're going to need a bigger church. Jesus Revolution. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. See it early February 22nd. Be in theaters everywhere beginning February 24th. Go to JesusRevolution.movie. America is giving away its inventions and technology to China. The Chinese Communist Party intends to surpass us and to be the world leader in innovative technology. The shocking new movie, Innovation Race, exposes the potential Chinese takeover of 5G and the Internet, threatening America's economic and military security. Dominating technology means you dominate the world itself. Watch the movie, Innovation Race, now on demand or DVD at SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hugh Hewitt says Ukraine needs our support. President Biden is in Ukraine and just announced another half billion dollars of aid to Ukraine. But nothing advanced. I I don't understand. Again, it's always do the least you can to keep them going, but don't upset Putin as opposed to beat them. And that would involve F-16s, other older planes, uh, lots more high-tech artillery. The Hugh Hewitt Show. Weekday mornings at 6, right before Mike Gallagher at 9, and AM 1250, The Answer. Hey, John Steigerwald here for Johnny and Jesse Samick, my friends over at Service Master of Greater Pittsburgh. When disaster strikes your home or business, demand the yellow van. Fire, water, or mold, Service Master's technicians are trained and equipped to get you back to normal fast. Even when dealing with insurance, you have a choice who repairs and cleans up the mess. Make sure you demand the yellow van. Call Service Master of Greater Pittsburgh. Demand the yellow van. Do you have a loved one entering a nursing home? There's a lot at stake. This is Jay Hagerman of Abernathy & Hagerman. Depending on your family's long-term care goals, there are important decisions that should be made before a facility is needed. Talk to a qualified legal professional today. At Abernathy & Hagerman, we can help your family navigate the complicated Medicaid rules so that you can properly save some or all of your life savings from a long-term care crisis. Before you apply, contact Abernathy & Hagerman at a-h.law. From the creators of I Can Only Imagine comes Jesus Revolution. If you look a little deeper, if you look with love, you'll see an entire generation searching for all the right things, just in all the wrong places. Based on a true revolution. You're going to need a bigger church. Jesus Revolution. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. See it early February 22nd. Be in theaters everywhere beginning February 24th. Go to JesusRevolution.movie. AM 1250 and FM 92.5. The Answer. WPGP Pittsburgh. A division of Salem Media Group. Listen on the Answer mobile app. Smart speakers. Tune in iHeart or Odyssey. AM 1250. The Answer. Weather. Mostly cloudy skies for tonight. It'll be breezy and mild with a couple of showers. Tonight's low 55. Tomorrow, a couple of morning showers. Otherwise, mostly cloudy. Becoming windier and warm will reach a high of 72. Partly cloudy tomorrow night. Winds gradually subsiding. It'll be much colder with a low of 30. Friday, breezy with intervals of clouds and sun will reach a high Friday of 36. With your AccuWeather forecast, I'm Drew Shannon. This is the John Stackerwalt Show on AM 1250 and FM 92.5. The answer. Now, for the people who are still around 50 years from now, it's going to be fun to look back at all the stupidity created by the government in dealing with COVID-19. Masks might be the most stupid, and the verdict seems to be in on that now. John Tierney of City Journal, he's a contributing editor there. He was on this show a long time ago talking about a piece he had written. Uh, talking about how useless they were way back then, and he's back again. John, thanks for coming on. Great to be back, John. Yeah, uh, 
Good to have you. You you were here, as I said, a couple of years ago with lots of data that showed the masks were useless. So it's a settled issue now. Is that the, is that where we are? Well, we have the most authoritative verdict yet. You know, the gold, you know, throughout the pandemic, the CDC was just pushing these junk science, you know, studies like, you know, like a one hair salon with two stylists where they wore a mask and, you know, and, and you know, and, and, and supposedly nobody got COVID in the customers. But in fact, they never even tested most of them. But anyway, we now finally have, you know, the best study yet. You know, the gold standard in medical research is the randomized clinical trial. And there had been, you know, a bunch of these trials before the pandemic looking at whether masks worked against um, flu and cold viruses. And they had had determined, no, that they didn't seem to make any, you know, much difference. And that was why, you know, before the pandemic, the WHO, the CDC, you know, all these national agencies did not recommend masks if we had a bad pandemic. But the CDC just reversed all that and said, oh, no, no, now we think it's working against COVID. Well, the gold standard in evaluating clinical trials is a group called Cochrane, which is a huge network around the world, the most respected authority that reviews these trials and issues a verdict on on it. And they just issued a review uh, of all the clinical trials involving COVID and, and also the other viruses. And their conclusion is that masks, probably made little or no difference in stopping the spread of respiratory illness. So let me see if I have this <laughs> this right. <laughs> I was uh, forced to wear masks in the restaurants, and then I, as, as long as I was walking to my table, and then I, I was given permission to take them off while I ate. Some places actually recommended, as not, now that I think about it, <laughs> that, that you chew with the open, you know, pull your mask down, throw the food in there, chew it up, and then, you know, while the mask... Uh, anyway, that was all going on in part because of something that happened at a beauty salon? A hair salon? Yeah, I guess that, was the, that was the first thing, you know, that um, uh, the CDC said, that's the latest science. It was some ridiculous, you know, it was a study. I mean, it wasn't really even a study. It was kind of an anecdote. Um, and then later, uh, the CDC director went on, I uh, was on a face the nation, I think, and hailed, oh, we have a study in Arizona that shows dramatic, that masks in schools in Arizona dramatically reduced the risk of COVID, the spread of COVID. And other researchers looked at the study and said, it's, you know, the, the, the words they use were quote, a ridiculous, you know, and so unreliable that it shouldn't even be discussed in public. And yet this is what the CDC was doing. They were just desperately looking for any kind of, you know, you know, study, no matter how bogus it was, to justify their edicts. And, you know, me, you know what they should have been doing, uh, you know, uh, uh, the U.S. has the most lavishly funded research public health establishment. They should have been doing their own clinical trials to see does this stuff actually work. And they never bothered doing it. You know, and there's new review of studies around the world of clinical trials that were done. They had to rely on, on trials that were done in other countries because we never in the, in the U.S., we have the biggest budget. And, and the CDC didn't care to actually test whether its policies made any sense. They just, you know, seized on this, on this sort of junk science. And, and they would claim, oh, well, you know, in this one place here, they imposed a mask mandate and, and and COVID cases declined, so the mass worked. And, you know, but if you actually looked at the long term, you know, it made, you know, I mean, COVID cases go up and down. That's, and, and they just, the CDC just steadfastly ignored the results of clinical trials. And they also, you know, in City Journal, we ran this, you know, what I think is one chart that I wish every maskaholic would see because it's, it's done uh, where they looked at the entire country you know, all the states and, and, and we during the pandemic and each, you know, and states imposed and they lifted mass mandates at different times. And this chart was done by a great data, a data analyst named Ian Miller, who wrote a book called on mask. And he just shows how around the world, you know, the mass mandates made no difference. But in this particular chart, it shows in the U.S. each week you can see what's the COVID rate in, in all the states with mass mandates, what's the COVID rate in the states without the mandates. And the curves are just identical, you know, and, um, 
And the result over the long haul was, you know, was the same. You had the same number of COVID cases. Uh, you had, you know, basically the same number of COVID deaths, whether or not there was a mandate or not. So, you know, that data, you know, that actually just data from the pandemic, plus these clinical trials that were done, they all showed that masks made no difference. Yeah, the uh, the graph it's a it's an orange line and a black line, and one of the lines represents COVID cases um, in places with mask mandates and COVID cases in places without mask mandates, and the black <laughs> and the orange line are you, you can't they're they're almost together. They're and the, and you can see the little bumps in the line going by week to week, and then when the when the big uh, number of cases hit, it looks like Mount Everest, but. The orange and the black lines are both go to the top of the chart together and then come back down. So it, 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 it's right there. It showed it made no difference, none. No, the only difference you can see is that you know that um, the red states in the south tended not to have mask mandates, and they got hit with COVID cases more in the summer. You know because yeah. people are inside with air conditioning, and in the northern blue states, they got hit more in the winter. When you know, so you see slight differences there, but they balance out. And over the long haul, there were actually slightly fewer COVID um, deaths per capita in these states with, uh, uh, without the mask mandate. So in other words, the states with the mandates did very slightly worse, but it was essentially identical. You know, they just didn't make any difference at all. Well, you mentioned that they, that they didn't do the studies, um, that they didn't do the trials. And I'm wondering how much of that had, could have had to do with the fact that they had convinced themselves, or at least that they, that they had, back themselves into the corner by trying to convince everybody else that whoever gets this disease is going to die. And so they, they were afraid to have trials because they didn't, want to, they didn't want to look for volunteers who were willing to die to test to see if their, their mask, you know, not having a mask affected them. You know what I mean? It's, uh, right it's it was too no, dangerous. No, that's exactly right, John. I mean, they you know one of their excuses was well, it would have been unethical because masks are such great life saving devices. Yeah. We couldn't deny them to anyone. But you know, but but it, it had been. I mean, other places did it and realized that it was unproven. And as I say, the you know the trials before the pandemic, nobody you know the, all the you know the national health plans, you know, the CDC. Their plan before COVID was even if we had a pandemic as bad as the Spanish flu of 1918, we still don't recommend masks because Mm -hmm. there's no evidence that they work. And, you know, and the worst thing was, is I mean, not only was there no evidence that they work, but there is all this evidence. There are dozens of peer-reviewed studies that masks are harmful. Oh, yeah. They cause psychological problems. They cause social problems, you know, especially for kids, for people with disabilities, and just for everyone, you know, they're... There's this phenomenon called mask-induced exhaustion syndrome, which you know, it's just from breathing all this bad air through there. That you know that they're definitely harmful. So, yeah, yeah, um, you know, public health authorities are supposed to go by the principle as doctors do: first, do no harm, right. and they're doing definite harm with masks without any evidence that it worked. And I think, as you say, their excuse was, well, it would be unethical. But, the, you know, but I think, the, you know, the other reality was they didn't want to find any, um, any bad evidence. The way they kept seizing on this sort of junk studies and, you know, just to try and justify it. It basically, you know, it was, it was some public health officials and politicians who wanted to look as if they were doing something. You know, yeah. as Ron DeSantis said, you know, they want you to cover your face so they can cover their ass. <laughs> um, and, and, and he was right. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, DeSantis was the one guy who, you know, the scientists that I talked to, you know, the good scientists who are actually paying attention to, you know, to the research literature and the data, yeah, the great Barrington scientists who issued this declaration, they told me, you know, whenever they talked to DeSantis, because he actually consulted the best scientists, whenever they talked to him and they mentioned a study, he'd already read it. Mm-hmm. You know, he really followed followed the scientific literature and did and did the rational thing. But, you know, the rest of, you know, the whole establishment and the CDC was, I mean, we would have been better off without the CDC trying to Yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, they just caused so much more damage than they did good. You know, in places like Sweden, new enough. In fact, you know, in Sweden, um, 
they discouraged people from wearing masks because they knew that there were so many, you know, downsides to them and there was no evidence. And Sweden did better than, you know, almost any place in the world over the course of the pandemic, you well, know, as far as uh, avoiding deaths. Yeah, I had uh, reached the point where I was uh, I was hoping that I would be given the option of having the government send an infected person to my house and have them, I open the front door and they breathe on me. And then I would get I would get the disease and be done with it. That's what I, I rather than have to wear the mask. I, that's where I was. But uh, as we're speaking right now, and we're talking to John Tierney of uh, City Journal. He's a Pittsburgh guy, by the way. Um, as we're speaking now, there's I'm, there's probably a car, and I'm, I'm hoping they're not listening to this show. But there's a car right now that contains a person by himself or herself driving the car wearing a mask okay because it, it's not it's not going away is it no it's not i mean i still see you know i uh, i'm in new york now and i still you know the you know there's building i go into where the doorman wears a mask he wears gloves still too uh, it's just you know one uh, i mean once you get people scared they you know there's mask you know i've written before in city journal about how one of the the, the bad things about this is that once you force everybody to do this to wear a mask, to, you know, to be obediently wear this mask. It, it's kind of a form of hazing where once people have done it, they want to believe that it was worthwhile. You hate to admit, God, I yep. wasted, yep. you know, for two years. I put, you know, and what's really awful about the United States, about the CDC, is we are the only country in the world that recommends masking two-year-olds. I mean, that is oh, just that so just, cruel. Oh. I, I mean, I mean, the European Union, you know, they say don't mask anyone under 12. The World Health says no one under six. And we, you know, and, and they're still, you know, saying for two-year-olds. You know, and the funny thing is that at the start of the epidemic, um, uh, uh, Anthony Fauci got an email from a colleague who was coming to flying to Washington to meet with him. And, and she said, uh, should I, uh, you know, get a mask, a surgical mask for the plane? And he accurately said, no, nah, it's not going to do any good. And then he just, of course, completely flip-flopped. Yeah. And, you know, once it became, once they decided, you know, we're going to pretend masks work, that just became the science, you know, no matter what real science, you know, showed. Well, I had to go to the Social Security office a couple of weeks ago, um, and I walked in and was told by a masked-up security guard that I had to put a mask on. Now... What are the chances that despite the new information that we just talked about here, that he was still wearing his mask today in the uh, office where I went in Mount Lebanon? Well, I'm sure he is. It's just crazy. <laughs> I mean, no, the CDC uh, director, Walensky, she, was, she went on, uh, she testified before Congress uh, about two weeks ago after this new review came out. And they said, well, how's this going to affect your guidance? And she just proudly said, no, oh, our guidance doesn't change through time. I mean, you know, what kind of a scientist says we pay no attention to new data once we. Yeah, we uh, yeah, and you know, don't confuse us with you know with facts and figures. Well, it's funny that there's a show on uh, ABC that um, has pops up on my TV every once in a while by mistake, a Tamron Hall show, and she's a very talented woman, and she seems like a really nice person, and it's not a show that appeals to me. But when I happen to be flipping through and it see it, or if it just happens to be on my television when I walk by, and this is uh, in the last day or two I saw it. Every person in the audience is wearing a mask. And these weren't recorded, you know, two years ago. They were recorded in the last few days, if not the same day. There's the whole audience, the entire audience is wearing a mask. You know, it's just so crazy, you know, what the entertainment industry is doing to drive away, you know, audiences, you know, on Broadway and places. I mean, they they dropped the mask mandate there. But for so long, they were just forcing this on people and you know i mean it's still going on you know at hospitals and doctor's offices i mean it's bad enough to go to the hospital but to you know actually have to go through all these procedures and spend all this time wearing an uncomfortable mask you know you can't see people's faces it's hard to talk it's hard to breathe it's just you know all this needless pain just done i mean part of it is you know that a mask has become the maga hat of the left yeah, you know, it's yeah. just this is how you demonstrate your virtue, but but what an awful way to do it. Yeah, but uh, and, what do you, John? What, what at what? Well, I, I don't get their motivation. I mean, you talked about the fact that they don't want to. They want to. They don't want to admit that it was stupid. 
and they want they're sticking with it because they're that's their way of saying that they still believe in what they were saying two years ago. But there has to be something if if there if it's not stupidity, it has to be something a lot more nefarious than that. Because well, it, it's think, just you know, too stupid one. to make any sense with anybody, you know, for anybody to do that. Well, it seems intuitively right to people it must do something, you know, and, and people always say, well, surgeons wear them, so they must work. But surgeons wear them to stop droplets from their coughs and sneezes. It's not about trying to, you know, prevent these, these you know, these tiny viruses in the air from getting in. They don't work against that. Um, so I think that's partly that, it, you know, there's an intuitive feeling it must, it must, you know, do good. It's kind of a placebo effect. Oh, if I wear a mask, I'm safe. But I think there's also just another aspect that, and you see the same thing with environmentalists here, where um, you hype a danger and then you propose a solution to it that involves pain and sacrifice. <laughs> and, people, and, and people feel as if, that you know they're doing penance this must be doing something it's like yeah. you know i mean i've been at holy week processions in spain when people are whipping themselves you know? yeah. and you think somehow that pain is that we're atoning for our sins and this pain must be worth something so i mean it's weird the way environmentalists are constantly choosing the most painful possible solution to things rather than than you know than something that actually makes sense but but i think there is this feeling that if you make people suffer um, people tend to think, well, it must be doing something good. And there's also just the fact that, you know, they love power. They love telling people what to do. And it, it's, you know, it's kind of a symbol of obedience. And they're already, you know, seizing on this. Leftists are seizing on this. Is well, well, now that we've seen what people will do, you know, we can take away all these liberties and make people follow these, these idiotic rules during COVID. Now we've got to use these same lessons for climate change. And we're going to, you know, we're going to ban your stoves. We're going to ban your cars. We're going to, um, I mean, they just do like power. And, they, you know, and this is a visible symbol of they're in charge and everyone's is, is obeying them. Yeah, the, we've been hearing that all along, that it's about power. And just they, somebody out there just enjoys the, uh, the, having the ability to say, everybody wear a mask. Uh, and I, I used to say, and then seeing everybody do it, and I used to say, because uh, I, I, I still live in the South Hills, and I, I, every once in a while I go into Mount Lebanon to walk my dogs, and during the, uh, as, the, as we would reach the point where you were thinking the masks were starting to go away, Mount Lebanon was unbelievable. You, you walked down the main street there, Washington Road, and every, just about every person you saw had a mask on, outside walking their dog, walking down the street, and, and I said, if they came out and said, you know, if you hop up, if you hop on one foot, <laughs> there's a really good chance that you're not going to get COVID. 90% of the people walking on Washington Road in Mount Lebanon would have not been walking, they'd have been hopping on one foot. When did we get to the point that people are that stupid and willing to accept well, that? You know, once you instill fear, once it becomes a thing, this is what good people, you know, on my side do. I mean, you know, I grew up in Highland Park, and and, uh, and I imagine down in Shadyside and East Liberty, the good progressives there are all wearing masks, too, still. Um, the the uh, it, It's just, you know, I, I mean, it became a symbol that, I you know, that I'm... Uh, uh, that I'm a good person and that, and that this is, you know, I'm not with those awful red state people who, you know, who, who actually, who had the temerity to question our experts. I mean, progressives have always dreamed, you know, since the, you know, early 20th century of a society where there'd be expert social engineers who would, who would run everything and save us from ourselves. Yeah. And, you know, they always seize on some excuse to, you know, to uh, to give bureaucrats more control over our lives, and COVID was, the, you know, their latest excuse. And the next one, and the and the and the endless one will be climate change. They can control every aspect yep. of your life. And here's the best thing about it all, John, that we were being told this stuff here in Pennsylvania by a guy who, uh, a woman, a, a, a person who was a, a guy twenty minutes ago was the father of, like, a few kids who was telling us that he's a woman and that we had to agree that he was a woman, and this is who we were getting our advice from. That, that, that's what I will always look back on, <laughs> Dr. Rachel Levine. And I'm out of time, but you know, what else can I say, John? 
<laughs> it's a crazy world, but I'm glad I'm glad you're fighting the good fight on your show, John. I always, uh, always love talking to you. Hey, thank you, John Tierney, Pittsburgh guy, and the and CityJournal.org. Thanks. Thank you, Jim. Okay, we'll be back. Wouldn't it be great to work in a place that makes a positive impact on the people, businesses, and churches around you? That place exists. I know because I work there. My name is Cassie, and I'm the digital marketing specialist with Salem Media Group in Pittsburgh. Right now, 101.5 Word FM and Salem Surround have an opening for one talented salesperson to join our team. Is that you? We'll bring the training. You just bring the talent. An understanding of digital marketing and some direct sales experience will definitely help you stand out. What are you waiting for? Take the first step to a career that is challenging, rewarding, and helps to create terrific results for our amazing customers. Join the sales team at Salem Media Group Pittsburgh. Email your resume to brad.marshall at salempittsburgh.com. That's brad.marshall at salempittsburgh.com. Salem Media Group is an equal opportunity employer. The John Steigerwall Show, AM 1250, The Answer. Well, Marjorie Taylor Greene has said some ridiculous things out there, and I'm not a hundred. I'm not the biggest fan of her, but um, she's out there now saying that we need a national divorce, and it has caused liberals to become apoplectic. They uh, they can't believe that she's saying this that we should be dividing the country along state lines and. And it's being looked at her. What what she's saying is being looked upon as being just unbelievably radical that anybody would suggest that. And I think what she's getting at is I actually agree with her. She's saying that there's such stupidity in the country, the dividing people that you can't. And what she's trying to do is say that the federal government should be given less and less power because it's not possible to have one entity ruling over people who disagree so much. And uh, so I agree with her. But the liberals are going insane. But here's the thing. I hate to keep bringing up my friend uh, Richard Levine. But nothing that Marjorie Taylor Greene is saying about a national divorce comes close to being as radical and as stupid as the government basically telling people that you are required to consider Rachel Levine, a woman. It's just beyond stupidity. So good for Marjorie. I'll talk to you tomorrow. The John Steigerwald Show is a production of Salem Media Group and sponsored by Service Master of Greater Pittsburgh. Demand the Yellow Van. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.